right, take your Bibles and go to Revelation 5. If you're, hopefully you're already there, we've read the text this morning. And so go to Revelation 5, and as you go there, um, let's pray just one more time. Father, I, I want to bow my head again before you, Lord, and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, and may the power of the Holy Spirit um, exalt Christ, and that you would remove all distractions from me, from all of us, from our hearts, and that you would just focus our attention on your word, and that we would leave here glorifying Jesus and living for him. And uh, be with us now, and uh, it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Song of the Nations, and that's what Revelation 5 really ultimately is about. And so just imagine if we went through the entire Christmas season without any music. What if there were no songs? How would that change the entire landscape of how we view Christmas or our celebrations and our gatherings? What would that be like? It would not be the same, that is for sure. It Songs and singing and music capture the wonder and the joy of the season. There are things to sing about. And even as we might imagine Christmas without music and without songs, imagine a church without singing. Just imagine a church without singing. I mean, we do this every week, and sometimes it can, we can just get into a routine and forget uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it. But there, just recently, there was a stretch when there was no singing. Remember? 2020. There was no gathering and no singing together for at least a stretch of time for most churches. And that, I think that was one of the strangest things about 2020 was the fact that first churches stopped gathering. That was the first thing. Because you, you, can't, you can't have church behind a screen. You, you can't do that. You can't stay at home and have church online. You can watch things online. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can't have church online. And I can remember when at the, at the church that we were at at that time, uh, we, uh, there was, there was just such an awkwardness of not being able to, to sing corporately, even though I tried to force my family to sing with us in our living room. It, it didn't do too well. They did enjoy the fact that they could pause the sermon at, at certain points when it got too long and, uh, they could take breaks, but nevertheless, that besides that, um, it was just weird. I, and I remember when I was in 2020, so when we got to the summer of 2020, I was, um, I was in uh, the uh, uh, expository preaching program at the Master Seminary uh, there in Los Angeles. And so they had opened it up that, uh, that we could go out and continue our courses. And one of the blessings about the program is you get to worship with Grace Church where John MacArthur pastors. And it was the first Sunday that he had opened the doors. And uh, so the doors were open, you could gather, you could assemble if you wanted to inside, or you could stay outside under this big 
carnival tent that they would just kind of live stream the um, the service going on inside. And as soon as they opened that door, I, I, it just happened that I was able to be there for that first Sunday. And as soon as they opened the door, I mean, thousand people went flooded into that auditorium. And it was wonderful because, I mean, there were tears of joy. There was so much rejoicing because they had not assembled together for those for three or four months. And they had not, they were not able to sing together. And so when John MacArthur got up and he, uh, to preach, he, he admonished the congregation. Wasn't that a joy to sing? And of course, everyone applauded and yelled amen to that. And MacArthur also said, never again would those doors be closed. And I agree with that as well. But it really was. It was a strange time. No gathering, no singing. And the reason I bring that up is because um, songs shape us. And the reason singing is so important to the life of the church is that singing instills in us truths that we study and that we hear preached regularly. In fact, the Bible devotes a whole book to songs, the Psalms, all sung in the temple by the, by the nation of Israel. And so here in the, in this text before us, it concludes our songs of Christmas, our songs of nativity. And the reason why we've gone to the Gospel of Luke is because Luke records, or the, the first chapters of Luke, is because Luke records songs that accompanied Christ's birth. And so today we want to look at a final song, but obviously it's not in Luke. It is literally, literally the final song. It is the song in Revelation 5 that celebrates the whole reason Christ was born, our salvation. It is the song of the nations, the song of the redeemed, the song of every person who Jesus has saved from their sins. And as we go into a new year, let's just keep this main thought that we see in the text before us as the keynote. Let all the redeemed sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There's the song of the redeemed. There's the song of the nations. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so we see in the text three, three headings that carry us to, through this song, through this moment of praise in heaven. We want to consider first the great search, then we want to look at the grand sight that John sees, and then finally we want to unpack the glorious song that is sung in heaven. And as we do that, we will see indeed this admonition to all of us as we go into a new year, let us sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Consider first the great search. Look at verse 1 through 5. When I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. To open the scroll or to look into it. So notice here the universal dilemma that is described here in verses 1 through 3. 
The word scroll is biblion, from which we derive our English word Bible. It can refer to a papyrus or leather animals, a leather or animal skin or a parchment upon which ancient writings were written. The two words in the text, written and then uh, the, the word written and sealed, indicate that the scroll is complete and bear the authority of heaven itself. Now we know that because if you back up to chapter 4 in John's vision, the revelation, you will see that his vision of God on his throne, the sovereign one of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who sustains and maintains all of creation, they are seated on his throne. And then when you come to chapter 5, we see that in his right hand is this scroll. Bearing divine authority. So this scroll is divine in content and nature. What does this scroll contain? Well, it contains the sovereign decrees and will of the Almighty. Particularly as they pertain to the end of all things. Which is what the book of Revelation is about. So in essence, what what this scroll contains is the final judgments upon the world, and ultimately the rewards that will be given to the redeemed. In other words, to make it simple, this scroll contains the destiny of everyone in the world, including you and me. Now, if you're not a believer, that would be shocking. That should be stunning. But the reality is, is that in this scroll contains all of that information. And a mighty angel announces or proclaims a question that is probing. Who is worthy to open this scroll, to break its seals, to unleash its judgments? Who is worthy? Now notice this question. It's rhetorical in some sense. It's not meant to be answered. And the question, who is worthy, is not really asking who's, who's, who's most powerful or who's powerful enough, but who is worthy Worthiness has to do with moral righteousness, perfect justice, holy character, one who has intrinsic worth. And so the question is, is there anyone who possesses the intrinsic worth who would be able to open these scrolls, deliver judgment, execute justice, and complete the plan and will of Almighty God? Now just imagine the scene here when the angel asks asks this question. Imagine the great eyes of heaven as those eyes scale the universe and the canyons of time. Who is worthy? And the text says that there is no one who is found worthy. In fact, it's very specific. There's no one found worthy in all of the earth, in heaven, That would be all the angelic beings in the earth. All men and women living on the earth and dead buried beneath the earth. None found worthy. Think about the implication of that. That would include the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. None of them worthy to open the scroll. It would include Moses, the deliverer of Israel in the Exodus, not worthy 
David, his royal dynasty, and all of his descendants, save one, not worthy to approach the throne of God and open the scroll. Not one prophet, not Elijah, not Elisha, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, not Daniel. Not one of the prophets worthy to open the book. Not one of the disciples. None of the apostles. Not even Peter, James, or John, or the apostle Paul. None of them worthy to open the book. And then go beyond that. No great philosophers. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Plato or Aristotle or the church philosophers, Augustine or Aquinas. None of them worthy. All of the mighty conquerors who have lived throughout human history, from Alexander to Herod to Caesar to Napoleon to any, any of the empires that have risen and fallen, not one of Greece, of Rome, of Egypt found worthy. No one in history could be found worthy to approach the throne of God and to execute His divine will. And the, and the reason we emphasize this is because the repetition of the passage enforces to the reader the absolute inadequacy of every human being before a holy God. Again, read it. Repeatedly, no one was found worthy to open the scroll. All fall short of the glory of God. And the text tells us that John, in verse 15, verse 4, I mean, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. He weeps because so long as the scrolls are sealed, then the purposes, plan, and final program of God remain unfulfilled. It's kind of like this. John weeps because... In some sense, he won't know the end of the story unless the one worthy, the hero, presents himself. His weeping is not hopeless. In fact, it's hopeful. It's like coming to an end of your favorite book or a good book or a great movie and it leaves you in that cliffhanger, right? Where all of your emotions are just, your adrenaline is running and you want to know what's next. I think of the Avengers. Sorry, I'm a Marvel fan. But I felt that when you got to the end of the, of the what is the Age of Ultron? Was that the, the, the one? You get to the end, and, and you know, you know what's going to happen. I mean, you know this, isn't, this is not the way it's all going to end, where you, you have the snap and everyone dies. But you have to wait. And you have that intensity of emotion. That's where John is. John has this intensity of emotion, but notice in verse 5, it's quickly broken because one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so not only is there this universal dilemma, but there is this unexpected discovery. A discovery revealed to John. John's sorrow doesn't last because the elder says to him, weep no more. What a statement. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't wonder what happens. And here's why. 
Behold. We've heard that before, haven't we? Behold. When we go back to the passages in Luke, as we've gone through the songs of the, the nativity, behold, unto you this day is born a Savior and a Son, Christ the Lord. And so Jesus here is presented as the one worthy to open the scroll and to unfold the judgments. And there are two reasons that he's able to be, there are two reasons that he's the one able to open the scroll. Look at the text. One, it's because of who he is. Do you see how John, do you see the emphasis the elder puts on who he is? Who is he? And, and, and really, when you, when you read these two titles, doesn't it take you back to what we've read in all of the songs that are recorded in Luke? The messianic titles? He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Not only does it take us back to Luke, that takes us back to the prophets. That takes us all the way back to Genesis 49 and verse 9 and 10. When we are told that the Messiah promised to Eve in Genesis 3, 15, who will, who will be, who will bruise, who will crush the head of the serpent. It takes us all the way back there that this one promised to Eve will also come from the descendants of Jacob's sons, particularly, particularly from the tribe of Judah. The image of this lion of the tribe of Judah. So, so in essence, his title reminds us of the fulfillment of the, proph- the prophecies. And the image of the lion conveys majesty and strength as the one who will come from on high to save his people. And indeed, he is the majestic lion king of David. Don't think of lion king of Disney. I know that's what you're thinking. Do not think of that. But he is the king that's promised to Judah. And so this image conveys majesty and strength. He is the lion who came to defeat our enemies. But notice he is the root of David, the text says. That's the second messianic title. This means that he is the descendant of David, which all the prophecies in Isaiah were alluding to, particularly Isaiah 11, 1 and and verse 10. These two titles fuse together. The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David are fused together because Jesus is the long-expected king who would rule and reign forever. It is interesting because whether we're mentioning Disney or we're mentioning like some of our favorite tales and stories, this idea of a coming king, of a coming ruler, of one prophesied and promised all of the fairy tales that we all are so endearing to us are actually take us to the real true fairy tale J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, which is the story of the gospel of Christ, the true king who came from heaven to save his people, to redeem us, and then to rule and reign with us forever and ever. And so that's who he is. That's what qualifies him. Who he is is the Messiah. But in addition to who he is... This unexpected discovery also shows us what he does. Look at the text. Has conquered. Has conquered. That's a powerful verb. Conquered. He is able to, he is able to take the scroll and to unleash the judgments because for us he is conquered. When I think of conquering, I think of World War II enthusiasts. 
who could probably name every battle that was fought in World War II, right? From the battle of, of Midway to all, all, sorts of, all sorts of battles that could be listed. Same way with enthusiasts of the Civil War. And so you think of great battles, great, great, great uh, conquests that have been fought. Armies that go to a battlefield and win. This text is invoking that kind of heroic language. He conquered. He defeated the dragon. He went into the dungeon of the grave and he defeated death. He went to the cross and he completely destroyed our sin and nailed it to his cross. He conquered. And because of this, because of this glorious atonement and resurrection, he can break the seals because he has borne our sin. He can render judgment because he received judgment on the cross. He can determine destinies eternally because he holds the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He has conquered And that leads us to ask this question. If indeed he is conquered, do we admit our unworthiness of salvation? And that Christ determines the eternal destiny of all people? Do we admit this? You you see, because before we can ever get to the joy of the song, we have to accept what is given here, that there really is no one worthy to to take the scroll, to unleash the judgments, and there is no one worthy to approach God for salvation. Salvation begins with an admission of our unworthiness. And the longer you're a Christian, the more you understand, the greater your sense of unworthiness. I mean, when Paul wrote Timothy and said, I'm the chief of sinners, that's towards the end of his ministry. The longer you're a Christian, the more you understand this sense of unworthiness. And, and the reality is, is that all of us have to recognize we're not the masters of our own ship. And we are not in control of our own destinies. Ultimately, a sovereign God is. And that is why today is the day of salvation for the person who may say, well, I don't know where I'll spend eternity. Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and believe with all your heart that Christ died for you, was buried and was raised so that you could be forgiven and so that you could receive eternal life. And so this truth of the great search that ends with this glory, this discovery, this declaration that Christ is worthy It also leads us then to a greater vision of who Jesus is. Look at verse 6. And you have the grand sight. And between the throne. So so in verse 5, the elder says, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. This is what he's done. And so in verse 5, John hears him say this. In verse 6, he sees it. Look at it. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. You do see triunity here. God the Son, God the Father right there. 
the scene shifts and John says, I saw a lamb standing. Now hear me. This indeed is the mystery of the gospel. That the one who is conquered is the lion who is also the lamb. A lamb has conquered. In heaven, it will always be visible how Christ conquered sin and made us saints. Do you know why? Because He bears the scars in His body of His great sacrifice. So when, John, when the text says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, he knows that it has been slain because this lamb bears the scars that he received on Calvary's cross. And it is the indicator to all the inhabitants of heaven and to every sinner on earth that Christ was slain so that we could be forgiven. He was sacrificed on the cross. He died as our substitute in order for us to receive the forgiveness of sins. And what's glorious about the passage is it says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so what we see here is is this, that though this lamb was slain, he now stands, for indeed he is alive forevermore. And from Him, from this victorious Lamb, notice what it says. The Holy Spirit has come. And and that's the reference there. The seven eyes, the seven horns are the seven spirits of God. The number seven in apocalyptic uh, literature represents this. It is the number of completion, of perfection. And so He, through His sacrifice on the cross, because of what He has done... He has sent the Holy Spirit to the churches, symbolized in the seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits. The Holy Spirit sees all and knows all and exposes all and empowers the church to bear witness to Christ and the gospel. And so you see here that, again, we have triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the thing you also should note here is that the Lamb appears between the throne and the four living creatures. In the midst of the elders. Isn't that what it says? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. In their midst. In other words, what what the text is showing us is, is this. Is that the Lamb, the Lamb of God is the focus of everyone in heaven. It's all on Him. He is the center of worship. He is the attention. He has the attention of heaven. And with all eyes on Christ, notice what he does. The one who took our sin takes the scroll. Notice notice again. He went, it says, verse 7, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Notice how he boldly approaches his father's throne. No hesitation. No fear. You know why? Because he is very God of very God. He is fully divine. Even fully human as well. Christ indeed is the only one worthy to approach the throne of the father. Because the will of the father is also the will of the son. 
And that's why he can remove each of those seals. Because the Father's will is his will as well. So, you have the appearance of this lamb. You get the, you get, you get the vision here? What happens? Well, look at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so again, notice all these verbs. He stands, he walks, he grasps, he takes, he opens. And what happens? Everyone falls to their knees in the adoration of the lamb. Now, who are the elders? The elders represent all the redeemed of all the ages. That's what they represent. And notice what they hold in their hands. Harps. Harps. For celebration and praise. And then what else do you see there? And golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Believers throughout all the ages, despised and rejected, whose prayers were heard by the Father. And whose souls were purchased through the work of the Son. All of these components are a part of the worship of heaven. Now does that say something to us about worship for us here? I mean you do have some preaching going on, right? The angel is proclaiming, declaring. The elder is declaring, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David... And then here, as they are worshiping, they have instruments for praise. Prayer is, is lifted up to the throne of God. All of these things, proclamation, music, prayer. But what is the focus of all of it? The focus of all of it is Christ. Does that say something for us as well? I think it's easy for us to take for granted that we come to church week in and week out, and we don't have to wonder whether or not we're going to sing songs that lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Because Pastor Dan is diligent and faithful to ensure that, that what we are doing here with our worship team and that, that we are focused on Christ. And in this coming year, in addition to the prayers that already go up, let us be even more committed to prayer that is focused on Christ. Before, when I got here this morning, I went into the, to the um, young adult college age, that group, that in-between group. I don't know what to call those people. But anyway, they're young people. They're what I once was. That's what they are. And I went in there, and one by one, they all prayed. And each of them prayed for the pastors of our church, for all the ministry that will take place today and even in the year to come. Prayers lifted up to our God. And the center of those prayers were this, that Christ will be exalted. I walked away and I thought, more of that. More of that for me, more of that for us. Let that spread to all of us. Because worship is centered on Christ and the components of worship, certainly the preaching of the word is, is, is significantly important. But everything that goes around that is prayer and singing and fellowship and observing the Lord's table. These are all components of worship because they exalt Christ and they take our focus to the Lamb of God who was slain. It's a wonderful scene that you have here in Revelation. 
And even in our, sometimes our, our feebleness and our brokenness, we come. And when we gather, let us never forget that our feeble worship we're here will be perfected when we are in heaven and we see the Lamb of God and we worship Him forever. But I think the text forces us to ask a very important question. One that even kind of carries into the reality of this is the last day of 2023 and tomorrow's the first day of a new year. Is the Lamb of God the center of your life? Is He? Is He the object of your worship? Or have other things crept into your life to obstruct your focus and your worship of Him? Why not renew that and refocus it today? And for us as a church, will we, will He be the center of our church family, the object of our worship as we sing and pray and preach? And when we do so with greater fervency in the days ahead. And so we have two, we, we, we've seen two things here. First, we've seen the great search. No one was worthy except one, and that's Jesus. And then in the grand sight that is brought to us, we have a vision of Jesus that is altogether wonderful. But what happens in the last part of this text? Verse 9, the glorious song erupts. And here it is. Notice verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying. Now, now I want you to notice the word new song. What does that mean? The word new means a fresh song for a situation that did not previously exist. In other words, it's not that the people before couldn't sing praises to God prior to Christ's coming. But once Jesus comes and He fulfills the promises of God and He accomplishes our salvation, He renders to us a new song because believers now find themselves in a new situation. You say, what is the new situation? Christ has been offered as a sacrifice once and for all. For the believer, our sins are fully and finally forgiven. We are accepted and we are received by the Father through His grace that has come to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When He went to the cross, He declared, It is finished. Everything necessary for our salvation, of which all the folks in the Old Testament were looking forward to, it is now all fulfilled in Jesus, and we can sing in a way that they could not sing before He came. Why? Because He has conquered our sin and conquered the grave And the Father has received His sacrifice on our behalf. And so this salvation is also, there's another another part of this that's kind of a new aspect of salvation. This is for all people. Jew and Gentile. The gates of heaven are now flung open wide to the whole world. In this song. And there are two themes to the song. Ready? Ready? One is Christ's incredible sacrifice. And two, Christ's infinite worth. Now I'm going to walk through this. I'm not going to dissect it and keep you here for another hour. But I want you to look at how they sing in heaven of Christ's incredible sacrifice. All of heaven 
for all the ages to come will be filled with singing, celebrating the atoning death of the Lamb of God for our sins. In other words, you can't over-sing about the cross, can you? There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Ere since by faith I saw that stream, thy flowing wounds supplied. Redeeming love will be my theme, and will be my theme until I die. Can you outsing that? Does that ever grow old? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Can we outsing the cross? We can't. And we will be singing about the cross for all eternity. Christ's incredible sacrifice. But Christ's infinite worth. It celebrates the value of Christ. And do you know why I know that he is of infinite value? Because he's eternal. This, this doesn't take away from the Imago Dei that we're creating the image of God. But none of us possess infinite worth. You know why? Because we all die and we all decay and we turn to dust. And it's because of the one who has infinite worth that he will one day raise the dead and put us all back together. He is of infinite worth. And notice how this song unfolds. It's like the gathering of a great choir, right? You've got different parts. And the first group steps up, verse 9 and 10, and it's all the redeemed worshiping the Lamb. Worthy are you. All the redeemed, all the elders. And they sang a new song. All, the, all these people, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. There it is. His incredible sacrifice. And by your blood you ransomed for God from every tribe and language of people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Notice here the sacrifice of redemption clearly laid out. The lamb was slaughtered on the cross. The price for our salvation was the shedding of blood. And they're singing of it in heaven. He paid the ransom to redeem us to God. Look at the text. For God, by your blood, people are ransomed for God, to belong to God, so that he could be our king and we could be his people. Notice the scope of the salvation. It's the song of the nations from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And, and the reason for the four, the, those four titles is simply this, is that the redeemed come from every part of the world. They are saved with no restriction. And they are saved from sins. And there is no limit in terms of how God can save sinners. And now they are united in one triumphant song of praise to the Christ who has saved them. 
And as you read this and you see the celebration and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth, notice how the song of the saints, it covers the whole scope of redemption. Not just that Christ died for us. Not just that He has redeemed us. Not just that through the Holy Spirit we have been regenerated and we've been born again by faith and repentance. But there will be a day when we are gathered in resurrected bodies and we will reign with Christ forever. This takes us all the way to the new heaven and new earth. The question for you is, will you be in that number? Will you be singing this song? As you read this text and you see that all of these, all of these believers are singing praise, will you be numbered among them? But notice second, who joins them? Verse 11, the angels worship the Lamb. And then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. A number that is impossible to, to number. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so notice, joining the redeemed are the angels of heaven. Once again, the heavenly hosts that brighten the hills of Bethlehem now burst into a song Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They ascribe worth in that Christ is worthy to receive all praise and adoration, all honor, all glory, all blessing, all power goes to Jesus. Why? Because of the cross. And then the third thing, the last group. Look at, look at, look at what it says, verse 13. And then I heard every creature... So we go from all the redeemed to all the angels to now all creation <laughs> worships the Lamb. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth and in the sea and that in all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory and blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And there it is. All creation that once groaned under the curse now sings reborn by the grace of salvation. All creatures of our God and King. It reminds me of that passage in Psalms. The Psalms. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all you shining stars. Praise Him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, storm wind fulfilling his word mountains and all hills fruit trees and all cedars beasts and all livestock creeping things and flying birds kings of the earth and all peoples princes and all rulers of the earth young men and maidens together old men and children let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted his majesty is above the earth and heaven he has raised up a horn for his people praise all his saints for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Amen.
And why will we praise him? Because worthy is the lamb who was slain. That psalm of praise will echo through the courts of heaven in a way it has never been sung when all creatures sing praise to Christ for what he has done. You know, as you come to the end of this glorious song, you have to wonder, can can we put too much focus on the cross and the atonement? You can't. Spurgeon said that the cross is the deepest well of the believer's comfort and that it is the highest hill of God's glory. And that's why Paul wrote, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice how this text concludes. And the four living creatures said, so let it be. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And worshipped. Whenever you see the word amen, it highlights the surety of what has been said. So let it be. It will come to pass. Christ is forever worthy of worship. You know, at one time the angels sang glory to God in the highest. Because the Savior is born. And in heaven all the redeemed will join them in this new song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That is the song of the nations. That is the anthem of heaven forever and ever. So let me ask you these questions. Do you rest and rejoice in Christ's atoning work? Do you? Do you rest in that? Do you get more excited about the gospel than you do about other earthly things that will make no, have no significance a hundred years from now? Do you bow down and worship the lamb who was slain for you? Do you love him? What is the song and anthem of your salvation? What is the song that overflows from your soul? And the question I think that we need to ask is, will we take this song to the lost around us? Because the nations don't get there unless we take the gospel to them. And the reason we must is because we want them one day to gather with us so that we can sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Let's stand. And let's bow our heads and let us give God thanks for the song of the nations. If this is not your song, make it your song today by bowing your knee to Jesus Christ And surrendering to Him as Lord and Savior. And believer, let us renew in our heart a commitment to sing this song through the lives that we live in the coming year. That all glory may be brought to Christ. And that's how we're going to conclude today. We're going to sing. And certainly if you have any need, you're invited to come forward as well. But let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is holy and inspired. 
and thank you for Christ and for all that he's accomplished. Thank you because he is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And may all glory be given to him because he now lives and reigns. In his name, amen.